3: On the eve of summer, reason for optimism and reason for fear.
4: Now is the time, depending upon where you are and what your situation is, is to begin to seriously looking at reopening the economy.
5: On the unofficial start of summer, the nation's top health official issues a cautious okay.
6: The exciting thing for all of us is the decreasing mortality over time.
5: But cases in some parts of the country still on the rise. And so are hospitalization rates.
7: We're not closing our country. But what about those stores along Main Street?
5: And where does the country really stand on the economy? This CNBC special report begins right now. Here's Tyler Matheson.
3: And welcome once again, everybody. Glad you could be with us on this Friday evening. With Memorial Day upon us, questions and concerns linger about how we're doing with the reopening of the American economy. Let's take a look now at several states and what's happening there. New York seems to be trending in the right direction. Overall, cases are up slightly, but they're fairly stable since the partial reopening last week. And the state's seven-day average, this is key now, is down 14%. Let's head to Florida, where new cases are up 35% since reopening nearly three weeks ago, and its seven-day average is rising as well. So that is slightly alarming. A bit of an odd one in Illinois, where new cases have nearly doubled, but the seven-day average is headed in the right direction. Now let's head west to Nevada. It is looking to reopen its casinos very soon, and the trend is not its friend right now. Snake eyes. And in California, new cases are up more than 40 percent since that reopening out there. But the seven day average, it is fairly flat. Well, while we're still really in this first wave of the virus, how will health officials find clusters and that dreaded second wave of the virus if indeed it comes? How will they find it before it's too late? Crystal Watson is the senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security. Uh, Ms. Watkins, uh, th- Watson, Watson, thank you very much for being with us. Um, Thanks how very likely much. is it that, there will be, that that there will be a second wave of this virus in the U.S.? How likely?
6: Um, I think we just don't know. Unfortunately, with this virus, it it makes sense with past pandemics that we have seen multiple waves. And it would make sense that we should be concerned in the fall because not only will we be experiencing coronavirus, but also uh, cold and flu season. So we need to be able to distinguish cold and flu uh, from coronavirus. So it's important to know that we're not out of the woods yet and then also be vigilant for the second wave in the fall.
3: How will a second wave manifest itself? How will we know that one is upon us? What, how, what's, what forms is it likely to take?
6: Yeah, it's some of the indicators that you were just discussing by the states. So it's uh, increases in positive cases, increases in hospitalizations and ICU um, beds. Uh, it will look like uh, increases in percentage of positive ca- uh, tests. So overall tests um, will go up, but then also the positive tests will also go up. So there are a number of indicators we can watch for, but public health can also look for this, uh, find it case by case basis and and follow this and try to get indications more on the ground level before something starts to get going.
3: Your Hopkins dashboard is now famous where you track the daily uh, uh, rise or fall in cases. As we looked at some of those numbers where case counts seem to be going up in states that have begun some tentative and in some cases more aggressive reopening, how do you separate the cases that may be related to the reopening from the fact that in many of those states there's just more testing so you would expect to find more cases? How do you tease them apart?
6: Yeah. So we look for that indicator of percent positive tests. So if you have a low percent positive test uh, rate, which the WHO is recommending below 10 percent, then you know that you're testing enough to find those cases that um, to find as many cases as possible and that you're not just testing the sickest of the sick to find uh, those cases because that's when your positivity rate goes up.
3: Let's talk about the, the the possibility of a vaccine, which everybody is very excited about. We're very hopeful about that that this is a fearsome disease when it strikes in many cases. Uh, but there are a lot of people out there who are afraid of vaccination to begin with and maybe even more sort of hesitant to take a vaccine that has been rushed to market. What's the risk of that, and how do you sell to the American public or the global public? A vaccine that has been fast tracked the way these seem to be?
6: Yeah, it has been fast tracked in some ways, um, but there are other ways in which we're taking all of the normal precautions that you would take. So in particular, looking at these uh, clinical trials, so we're still going through phase one, phase two, and phase three clinical trials. And because we have such widespread disease, it's possible to do trials on a large scale. So that should give us some comfort that we're, we will see if, if a vaccine has some safety signals because we'll be testing it in larger populations.
3: What is your sense of the likelihood of a vaccine being sort of generally available by the end of the year? And what is your sense of the probability, if at all, that there will be more than one vaccine that is effective?
6: Yeah, I think the, the likelihood that we'll have a vaccine that is available and available on the, in the numbers that we need is probably pretty unlikely. Um, I hope that we see multiple vaccines that will start to become available. Um, I think we're going to start to see more data out of different vaccine trials. Uh, but I, I don't think that we're going to have the millions and billions of doses that we need from vaccine mm-hmm. by the end of the year.
3: What is the probability, is it negligible in your view or something above that, that this virus defeats the vaccine hunters? In other words, HIV has no vaccine. Uh, the common cold, which is a kind of coronavirus, has no vaccine.
6: Yeah, I I think we're seeing early indications from the vaccine studies that we we think that we will find an effective vaccine. Um, We can't be sure, but I I think it's a high likelihood that we will eventually have a vaccine against this coronavirus.
3: And on that hopeful note, uh, Ms. Watson, thank you very much. We appreciate your time. Have a good and safe weekend. We appreciate it. Thanks. You too. All righty. Thanks. The latest data shows that nearly 40 million Americans have applied for unemployment over just the last nine weeks. Former Vice President and probable Democratic nominee Joe Biden was on CNBC earlier today, talking about the economy in sharp contrast to what President Trump said last night. It takes years and years to have it come back. The depression took 12
7: years, war, 14, 15 years. We're going to be back. Next year, maybe even in the fourth quarter, in a few months, we're going to be back. The vast majority of American people are suffering right now. They don't measure their public health, their physical uh, security and their economic stability based on the market. Let's reverse the Trump Tracks cut. Imagine we have that if we had that two trillion dollars now as we go into God willing recovery, which is a long way away as I see it right now.
3: Well, Lindsay Piegza is the chief economist with Steve for an econ reality check. Lindsay, good, as always, to see you. The president says we're going to be back, back by the first part of next year, maybe even by the end of this year. Back to what?
2: Well, that's a good question, because remember, we're still looking at early signs of the contraction at the start of the year, just a modest reduction of GDP. We still haven't even seen the blunt of the hit, which is expected to come in the second quarter. We're looking for a contraction around 30%, maybe more. But I do agree with the president in the sense that we're likely to see a near-term rebound. In fact, we're looking for third quarter growth to pick up around 8 to 10%. But I caution the view that this may be the beginning of a V-shaped recovery as it's likely that we do fall back into negative territory by the end of the year. So in the same token, I also agree with former Vice President Biden in the sense that it is going to take a long time to return back to a pre-virus trend case. I don't see the economy reaching that 2% or above level until well into 2021, if not 2022 or beyond. So it's going to take quite some time to see a sustained rebound. But again, as the President pointed out, we could see periods of improvement.
3: Explain to me how the numbers are going to play out here. We all assume that the second quarter of this year is going to be a disastrous quarter. Then maybe the third sequentially is going to look a little bit or maybe a lot better than the second and the fourth may be better than the third. But when you compare those late year quarters to where we were a year ago, are we looking at an economy that is multiples uh, in percents smaller than it was a year ago? even though it's growing compared with the previous quarter.
2: You're right. So quarter over quarter, which is how we calculate GDP, we will see that relative improvement from the second quarter trough to the third quarter. But on a nominal basis, you're simply talking about going from terrible to not quite as terrible. And then again, when we move into the fourth quarter, as the consumer is likely to remain restrained, be that over lingering health fears or depleted finances, or businesses that were able to stay afloat now in this new environment, facing new restrictions and rules, well, they find that an insurmountable hurdle, and they're forced to close by the end of the year. So there's a number of different factors that may take time, and we see that negative growth prospect, again, falter in the fourth quarter. But year over year, as you pointed out, we're talking about an economy contracting at an annual rate somewhere around 6 7 maybe 8%. So significantly depleted from where we were coming into the new year.
3: All right, Lindsay, from terrible to maybe not so terrible, we'll take whatever hope we got. Lindsay Piegza. thank you very much. And here's what's coming up on tonight's CNBC special report.
5: Next tonight, a doctor who just graduated medical school hits the front line against the virus. See the crisis through his eyes. Next,
4: Plus, denim's actually a pretty good fabric for uh, creating homemade masks.
5: How one popular blue jeans maker is stepping up and meet three American business owners and find out how they're getting their businesses to turn the corner. Before the break, what the United States looks like on the 145th day of the coronavirus crisis.
3: But when lockdowns left the jeans company, Lucky Brand, with unsold clothes and extra denim, they put it to good use. Tonight, how Lucky Brand is stepping up.
4: During a crisis, a company's culture gets revealed. So when this crisis first started, as part of our um, keeping our employees safe, we canceled a sample sale uh, because it didn't allow for social distancing and so we had all these samples left over that we decided to donate to a lot of the charities that we were already working with. Uh, Our tech designers began to uh, cut and sew masks. Uh, Denim's actually a pretty good fabric for uh, creating homemade masks, so we had a lot of uh, excess fabrics that we were able to to, uh, put into work right away. You can go to luckybrand.com and you can buy five masks that are CDC uh, grade, and then we'll give five masks away with every purchase. So we're basically taking it at our cost. You know, right now, I'd say leading a company through this, uh, we're taking it day to day. You know, we're taking the precautions we need to make sure that there's uh, a company uh, on the other side of this. And and in the meantime, we're just taking care of our people.
3: Well, that was Lucky Brands stepping up. And I kind of like those masks, Lucky Brands. On day 145 of the crisis, here are some more headlines on the virus and where we stand. Georgia releasing guidelines for restarting film and television production in that state. The New York auto show, A Biggie, which had been pushed from April until August, is now officially canceled for this year. And Nevada's unemployment rate topped 28% in April, the highest ever for a U.S. state. Well, some medical students across the country made the decision to graduate early so that they could help on the front lines of the corona COVID crisis. NYU's Grossman School of Medicine was the first to make this happen, graduating 52 students back in April. We're joined now by the Vice Dean of NYU's Grossman, Dr. Stephen Abramson, and one of those early graduates now working at NYU Langone, Dr. Frank Chung. Welcome to both of you and congratulations, Dr. Chung, on your graduation and beginning your career. I gather from day one, Dr. Chung, you were thrown right into the crisis. How scared were you?
1: I think it's definitely a really scary experience just because, you know, you hear about a lot of it on the news. It's obviously affecting everything that we're doing right now. Um, And I I think also as a junior physician or as anyone who's just graduated a newly minted MD, it's really challenging. And there are a lot of issues that um, you face. And I think I was lucky enough to have an incredibly supportive group of uh, residents and attendings who really helped ease that way.
3: Were you prepared for what you had to deal with? You had to deal with people who were suffering from fatal diseases. Were you ready?
1: I think I was as ready as I possibly could be. I think my, hello? Yeah, I I think I was as ready as I could have been. I think it's a really difficult situation to be put into just because, you know, being a physician on your very first day is quite challenging. And to do that in the middle of a global pandemic is definitely heightens the stakes, if you will.
3: Dr. Grossman, I guess, as the the old saying goes, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And this was a mother of a disease to have to deal with. And so you made the decision early to move these fourth years into clinical practice. How tough a decision was it?
7: Well, actually, it was it was interesting because the students came to us first uh, they had been taken off the, the the hospital wards out of concern, and then several of the students who were about to graduate in July came forward and said, "We'd like to we'd like to join you in this uh, in this battle against COVID." So we we decided it would be a very important thing to do because this was at a point when the COVID census in our hospitals was rising uh, exponentially. We went uh, to from ten patients to four hundred patients at Tisch Hospital for example. So the students came forward, we asked for volunteers, 52 uh, volunteered, we graduated them on April 3rd and by April 10th they were part of what we had called the COVID Army and they joined other doctors. And I tell you their courage, their devotion was unbelievable and not only did they add manpower at a very important point, but they really raised the spirit of all the doctors and nurses in the hospital reminding people of what it was like that the physicians, the supervising doctors are there to train young people to teach and bring them along. And it really had a significant morale lifting effect uh, in addition to the numbers of people that they joined uh, to help take care of these very sick COVID, COVID patients.
3: It, it truly is Dr. Abramson truly is uh, an inspiring uh, entree to, to, to an inspiring career. Do you think that these young physicians are going to be better doctors because of what they've been through?
7: Well, they will have had an experience that none of us had ever had in our training. And it will mark their experience as doctors, as for all the doctors in the hospital, for their their entire lifetime. What we have told them when they come July 1st to be otherwise joining other new interns, they will be veterans. and they'll be very, very confident in their skills as as young doctors uh, when they join uh, uh, their intern class in July.
3: I'm very curious. I I have a friend who uh, works out at uh, Kaiser Permanente and has done a lot of work on doctor stress. Uh, Are you you worried about, Dr. Abramson, the, the, the level of stress all, all, not just among these new physicians, but among doctors in general, that they are being they are seeing things that they 've never seen before death at rates they 've probably never seen before
7: yeah it is it is stressful, and one of the things that we hear from doctors doctors like to feel they help whatever decisions they make they help patients and one of the frustrating facts of covid today is that most of what the doctors do other than good sustaining in the ICUs of respiration. We have no cures, we have no medicines that really reverse this, although some are really coming on with some promise. So it is frustrating and sometimes disheartening for physicians not to be able mm. to offer uh, offer their skills. And I think that, that has led to some of the stress. And I think we're at a moment where that's changing. I think there's a lot of hope uh, that these new treatments, the vaccines you've talked about tonight, the antivirals and others
3: right. have really
7: created what we think is an inflection point or a pivot point in this fight against COVID. So there's, there's more optimism than there was in, in previous weeks. But nevertheless, yes, it that is, is certainly palpable. Yeah, it is very frustrating. Yeah. Uh, and we are working hard to tend to, to support people and to make sure that those who are having stressful periods uh, have, a, have support. And a place to go for help if they need it.
3: Dr. Chung, back to you. Did did you have any kind of graduation?
1: Yeah, I I think I actually had the privilege of having two graduations, one early graduation and one that was just, um, actually was it just yesterday, Um, and I actually enjoyed those experiences. I really thought it was nice to, that we had the opportunity to gather as a class virtually and while it's definitely not as not the same as an in-person actual graduation I think it was an incredibly touching experience to get or experience this with the entirety of my class.
3: How are you holding up when a new doctors it's tough stuff how are you holding up quickly? Dr. Chung.
1: I'm doing well, and I, I have to thank all of uh, my co-residents and all of the faculty who have been amazing and incredibly supportive and the whole environment here at NYU and Bellevue.
3: Dr. Chung, Dr. Abramson, thank you for what you're doing. We appreciate it. Thank you. All righty. Here's what's coming up.
5: Next. Our weekly forum dedicated to independent business owners from coast to coast. While many are struggling, many are seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. Three of them, all with unique challenges, join us next to share their paths forward.
0: People today can spend half their lives over 50, so it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older like a family vacation, or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.
9: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, Positively FedEx.
5: American business. The lifeblood of our economy. There are more than 30 million independent businesses employing half the nation's workforce. Most have been forced to close their doors. Those who have been able to operate aren't at full capacity. But the country is turning a corner. All 50 states are now partially open. Some businesses who deal with customers face-to-face are running into new challenges. Tonight, we'll face them together. This CNBC special report, The Path Forward, Your Business, continues. Once again, here's Tyler Matheson.
3: And welcome back, everybody. Glad you could join us on this uh, pre-holiday Friday evening. Before we bring in tonight's business owners, I want to introduce my consultant this evening. Welcome back, Michelle Romanov. She is co- co-founded ClearBank, involved in helping fund thousands of uh, e-commerce businesses. Uh, Michelle, w- welcome back. Good to have you with us.
0: Thank
10: you. Since Great the last
3: time we were to since since the last time we were together, you- the businesses you've worked with. How are they doing? Are they doing better, the same, treading water, getting worse? What?
0: Yeah, well, we're in the e-commerce space. And so we have seen e-commerce penetration go from 15 percent to 27% of retail sales in America. So in that segment, which can include a ton of brick and mortar, um, we've seen that do well. That being said, you know, American unemployment numbers, we've seen now 39 million Americans file for unemployment, which is 12% of the US population. And so, and when you look at even more vulnerable groups like you know, the group of workers that got paid less than 40 grand, it's 40%. Of those Americans have lost their jobs. So we're seeing early signs of recovery and, you know, social distance openings, but we haven't quite seen those um, in all the numbers yet. Unemployment has kind of been steady and didn't rise this week.
3: Yeah, and certainly in the e-commerce area, which is your specialty, you would expect to see uh, some green shoots maybe ahead of some of the others. Let's bring in our first business tonight. It is Duluth Pack. You probably heard of them. They've been manufacturing canvas and leather bags and packs in the United States since 1882. But earlier this year, they started making hospital gowns. Tom Sega is the president and CEO, and he joins us from where else Duluth, Minnesota. Mr. Sega, welcome, uh, and it's great to have you with us. How did you make the move from making these rugged, uh, you know, live, live forever backpacks and, and packs to to gowns and PPE?
10: Well, the pivot that we had to make is, you know, we laid off some great people. Our workers are fabulous people. They work hard every single day and all of a sudden you know the economy shut down we don't have our bags to bank and so we started thinking immediately what can we do in a cut and sew business to help out get our people back and you know everyone has mortgages and car payments and food to put on the table and so we worked night and day to figure how can we pivot how can we make this happen? And uh, along with some partners and, and some industry people that we know, we we literally just changed direction and said, there's a, a need for cut and sew and, and PPE. And, and how can we get in this and uh, look at the supply chain and how many are needed? And it just exploded on us uh, from there. And, and it's really great because we only had our manufacturing people laid off for two weeks and we were able to bring everybody back. And, and it was pretty cool. And I'll tell you what, American workers love to work. And and that was so clear on 6 a.m. on day one when we got everyone back. And in my long career, the first standing ovation I've ever been given from employees because they were so excited to be back at work. And they knew that we really worked hard to, to make sure that happened.
3: And American ingenuity to make that change from what you were doing. Michelle, jump in here. I know you have some questions and some thoughts.
6: Yeah. So, I mean,
0: this is very close to my heart. I invested in another company called Safe Direct Medical Supplies that imported millions of masks and the raw materials to make these products. And I think one of the things that we're not talking about is, you know, how important for our own national security we can produce these products that are critically needed domestically. So now that you're in PPE, like how long do you think this is going to last and how long do you think that's going to be a part of the business and will it be there for for a long time?
10: So, Michelle, I really believe it's going to be there for a long time. In fact, we're investing. We bought some new machinery during all of this, and we're trying to hire right now a lot of great production workers to mainly work in the the sewing end of our trade because we're setting up a completely separate line because with the way the hospitals and the medical community has gone through this, they're telling us that they really need to source something that is not only – it's not throwaway anymore, but something yeah. that is sustainable. They can clean it. They can wash it, launder it, and also they can source it here. And, uh, and so we're going long-term. We're, we're pushing the chips in on that. So we're not going to ever get away from the bag manufacturer. That's our brand. That's who we are. But There is a need, and we're going to try to fill that need because the cut and sew trade 25 years ago went overseas, and there's not a tremendous amount of it here, and we are one of the the small ones that are still here, and so we're going to try to expand and and meet that need as as we can uh, see fit.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it is extraordinary how you have pivoted your business, and You know, in many ways, your distribution was already quite diverse. You had direct-to-consumer and e-commerce already. Are you seeing those channels pick up as well?
10: So during this whole uh, shutdown, you know, the majority of our business was shut down because we we own a, a flagship brick-and-mortar store that does real nice for us, and that was completely closed. Our dealer network all over the world, well, those are brick-and-mortar stores, so those were closed. And then we do a lot of private label Uh, corporate business. And because everyone was out of work, that really shut down. So what were we left with? We were left with our e-com. And uh, that did very nice for us, but it's just a piece of the business. And and we really needed to scratch and kick and do whatever we could to make sure we got everybody back to work. And and, uh, as of this week, we have 100% of our uh, employees back at work because we were able to open our retail store and we brought everyone back and we're following all of the state and, and national rules on, on following the protocols for safety with our employees, with our uh, with our customers, and uh, got everyone back. And I, I couldn't be more proud of that.
3: I'm going to go buy a Duluth pack just because of this. Great story, Tom. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. And Michelle Thanks will be so with much us for just a, another me. couple you of segments. What? Support
10: American Made.
3: You bet. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll be right back uh, and tell you the story about a man who has lost 100 percent of his business. But before the break, here's what our world looks like on day 145 of a global pandemic. back everybody let's bring in our next small business owner he's jesse galvez started his jewelry business more than 30 years ago he's been closed since march 11th and business was down a hundred percent went from 100 to zero last month jesse welcome good to have you with us you've been in business a long time how heartbreaking has it been to see your business go from full bore to zero
8: it's been excruciating because People like me, uh, we've built it from the bottom down and we've been through September 11th and Irene and Hurricane Sandy and lots of, you know, the AIDS crises, Sika, uh, all the other ones. This is completely different. And to see zero sales completely locked down, it just its devastating. It really is.
3: Absolutely. You know, I I know one thing about your business, and that is it is really a person to person retail business. Michelle, Jesse doesn't have any e-commerce or digital presence. How can you help him?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it might be time um, to kind of see if you can bring some of your business online. You probably have, you know, thirty years of incredible customers that want to support you, and so being able to set up a store, email them, engage with them on social media might be a great hedge even as we open up um, to be able to have that way for your customers to engage and buy things with you. I, have you have you thought about doing that now?
8: I did, and in fact, I left the meeting this morning with uh, GoDaddy, which is uh, a. <laughs> for the people that actually did my uh, website that's up and running and I haven't refreshed it in a couple of like a a while because it is what I do is really, really personal, really, really small. People bring me in their watch for repair that their great grandfather had or earrings that mom left them in, in, you know, after she passed away. And so Jesus, my husband and I redo that. We had their treasures and we it's, it's really a one-on-one, and um, that doesn't translate on the website. But this morning I got in touch with somebody, and we're going to start a brand new website with a cart.
0: That's great, and I think what you'll find is that it is that person to person business that you've spent all of these time building deep relationships with your customers, and now if they want to come back to maybe get a second piece, they would totally do that knowing that it's it's from you and with
8: your curated taste. I hope so I'm, I'm hoping that's true, from your mouth to god's ears. <laughs>
0: I think you will, uh, will be able to do it. And I think we'll see. This is going to be a big part of how Main Street in America recovers is being able to build businesses that both have a brick-and-mortar component and an online
8: component. Well, whether we Jesse, want to or not. Go ahead. I'm sorry.
3: Go ahead. Finish your thought there. I'm. So- well, no, please, I, I, you finish your thought. I, I, I was I just, just, wanna just
8: I was just saying to somebody, as much as we resisted, Keeping small and and doing. The, I was so excited when I saw people walk in. Got to saw their children grow up and everybody. I mean, that's the kind of business that I run down here on the Lower East Side. And um, we were thrust into it. Everything is on the internet now. And this is my first Zoom yeah. meeting, so, by the way. Ah, uh, well, we're we're glad you're having it with <laughs> us, Jesse. Do you
3: have Do you have any, any idea? Do you have any idea um when you may be able to reopen? Have you reopened a little bit and how's it going to be different when you do?
8: Well, that's what we're trying to figure out. Susan and I were we have we have to we're trying to make a plan to have things wiped down. You know, we have handmade jewelry and earrings. I mean, even Cartier has got to figure out when when a lady walks over and says, Can I try them on or touch them or something? how we can sanitize every single sale and uh you know we have a a a plan you know to be to be and the sign in my window says uh, only a person with a mask and a very large pocketbook and fat wallet are allowed in (laughs) that's great (laughs) michelle
0: I love that you have a sense of humor on this. And I think that's what we need more of is, you know, our love for local businesses. And I think at a time where we've seen, you know, Amazon grow, how do we get Americans back to, you know, being consumers of yours and really embracing the local businesses around them?
8: Well, I've been told I'm a valuable person down here because in in the Lower East Side, and I had a guy that they come in from uh, all the way from New Jersey to get, custom-made, uh, redone, uh, a, a pocket watch, or even a valuable watch, redone. I, uh, and I'm the last Judaica store. is the only place you can walk in and get a mezuzah and, and, a, and a menorah. And we don't do ketubas anymore because we don't have the space. <laughs> but we're we're small. You know, we're, we have the word tchotchka out in front. So it says, you know, watches, jewelry, and tchotchka. And... We're the last kind of store that has that feeling, you know, Uh, but the landlord has not uh, come forward. They, they don't want to forgive the rent. What they want is to defer the rent. So for people like myself Mm -hmm. and and my neighbor and my, all my neighbors, if we could get two months, two and a half months of uh, of deferred rent, you know, uh, I mean, I, I mean, forgiven rent. Uh, It might make us get back in business. But deferred rent means that back in October, we got to pay the October rent plus what we got to pay back, our deposit, plus we got to pay back. You know, so it's like a balloon. Remember that balloon payment that happened? Yeah, it's like uh, a balloon
3: payment. Yes, exactly.
8: Oh, the balloon payment.
3: So that's why. Jesse, we have to leave it there, alas. But we're very glad that your first uh, Zoom or virtual meeting was with us, and on uh, global television. We appreciate it. We wish you Thank the best you. of luck. Thank and you so much. And remember those, those customers from New Jersey. Those customers from New Jersey—they're good folks. They're Jesse Caldas, we appreciate. They're,
8: it. I have a big following. You got that
3: right, man. Beans, right. beans. After the break, I'm telling you, we will explain. <laughs> now. But we move on now to the oldest bean manufacturer in the country, Camellia Beans, lost 35 percent of its business when restaurants across the country shut down. But then people started stocking up on beans. Vince Hayward is the fourth generation CEO, and he joins us from the wonderful town of New Orleans. Mr. Hayward, welcome. Good to have you with us. Your business initially went down, but it has sprung back. You actually expect to sell more beans pound wise than you did last year, right?
11: We do. We do. It was uh, it was a scary time when initially a significant chunk of our business just evaporated overnight as all the restaurants, of course, closed with the pandemic. Um, and, you know, we were forced as an organization really to take take a crisis and turn it into a catalyst of what we're going to do next, how we're going to pivot, how we're going to sort of uh, live to fight another day given what was uh, before us. And we were able to do so by um, – um, just reacting to the market demands of what consumers were asking for, and that was more staple goods in the home. And um, so we we started looking for retailers and and um, more accounts that would carry our products. And so far, it's it's uh, it's really paid off well for us.
3: Michelle, pick up the beans.
0: Congratulations on turning what could have been a crisis for your business into this complete catalyst. Um, give me a sense of some of the challenges that you had, you know, ramping up production during this period. This Did this involve new land and new farmers? Like, that seems like a whole new supply chain. Give me a sense of that.
11: No, you're spot on. The uh, supply chain is a huge issue. Essentially, you know, we sell an agricultural product. Um Last harvest was not as robust as as past years, so we're already dealing with a shortened supply. Now, greater demand's rolling in. Um, As as a company, we work with about 100 small family farms across the United States, and um, many of those were uh, not operating or didn't have product for us, so we had to help other growers quickly come up to speed Uh, on uh, the the standards and and specifications that we needed. Um, Of course, our ultimate concern was the health and safety and welfare of our our teammates, our consumers, our customers. And uh, if you remember, that was a time in which none of us knew how any of this was going to unfold. So um, safety was the primary concern for us, especially being a food product as you might know. Um, So given those two things, along with not really knowing um, how long was this going to last, you know, what's ahead of us? How long, how long do we have to hang on for what's coming at us? So it was, it was quite a scary time there for a while.
0: Well, good for you. And so now that we are 12 weeks in, you know, do you think consumers, I think beans is the ultimate survival food. So many people probably brought your product and still have it maybe uh, in their basement. Do you think we still see the same um, demand from consumers? And maybe do you see the restaurant business picking back up now that we're starting to slowly see restaurants open up across the country?
11: Well, look, that's two great questions. First, What's what's the um, what's the horizon look like for the restaurant business? Who knows? I mean, you know, there's a slow opening going on right now. My hope is that consumers embrace uh, the the new normal when it comes to um, utilizing uh, their local family operated restaurants. Um, But we don't know that that. That remains to be seen at this point. Um, will consumer demand remain high for beans? I think so. You know, uh, you know, healthier people with healthier diets. What could be better for fighting a virus? You know, so that's a win. Um, and uh, it's a, we're, a, people who aren't used to to cooking beans in the home have now been introduced to it. So absolutely, I think that we're going to see um, an increased demand for you know the foreseeable future, without a doubt.
3: I sense that you've expanded also geographically. I mean, we all know red beans and rice down in Louisiana and, and, and through the south. But this opportunity has presented itself for you to reach elsewhere, right? Well, look, we, yes,
11: absolutely. I mean, um um, the first thing we did was get on the phone and 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 start looking for other customers and retailers who could who could sell our product. And uh, no matter where they might be, we've gone uh, towards the west. We you know we've increased market share in in the uh, Denver, um, Arizona. Also, all the way to the west coast: San Francisco, uh, Los Angeles. Right. Um, we've shipped beans there. East coast up through the Carolinas. So absolutely, Any, anyone anyone who. Uh, who will uh, buy our beans. We're shipping them out.
3: <laughs> I like the sound of that. If I had some, you're making me so hungry. Vince, thank you so much. Vince Hayward, uh, Camellia beans. We appreciate it. And thanks to uh, all of our guests, especially Michelle Romanow of ClearBank. Uh, and for more resources, you know where to go. You can go to CNBC.com slash small business, folks. You'll find out a lot more there. Thanks for being with us tonight. Have a great Memorial Day weekend. Remember what it's all for. For all of us here at CNBC, I'm Tyler Matheson. Deal or no deal is next.
9: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you.